Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Before diving into Women's History Month with a collection of amazing women, artists, thinkers, and leaders we all should know. We're going to take a quick look at all things from the midterms to the Oscars with political strategist and organizer Ken Mahia Beale. Ken is first and foremost an activist and a supporter of the underdog. He's a concerned citizen who cares deeply for his country and wants to make the world a better place for all people. Ken has been a political strategist and organizer for several candidates over the last five years. He's a contributing editor at Dim Right Press, which was created to shine a spotlight on corruption and buttress American democracy. His Chronicles of an Outsider series explores his journey as an everyday American who happens to be African American and a member of the LGBTQ community. Ken is also a contributing editor for Patriot Not Partisan, an online magazine launched by actress and political activist Alyssa Milano. This Chicago native is a capitalist with a heart who believes in free thinking and human rights. Ken wants to use his words in order to shine a light on political ventures in order to allow those without knowledge to form a strong position. Ken resides in DuPage County, Illinois, with his husband, singer-songwriter, Michael Mahea Beale. Ken, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Very well. How about you? Oh, pretty good. You know, this, I survived the polar vortex, you know, and now look at <laughs> I mean, you know, this is just like so great to talk to you. Like there's so many things going on. Yeah. But first of all, what about that election? Ah, oh, um, I'm still speechless and I'm still, um, I'm still reeling from it, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. be- because um, I've, I- Ooh, can, can I tell you a, a true story that I've never told anyone besides my husband? Um, I was invited to dinner by Rod Joy, who is, uh, did run for lieutenant governor of Illinois. And I thought he was actually going to run for mayor of Chicago. So he invites me. I am totally ready for him to say, I want you to be my campaign manager. I'm going to endorse Lori Lightfoot for mayor, who I've met before. And he goes, what do you think? I said, I like her a lot. I think she's smart. 
I think she's sharp. I think that she is everything that Chicago needs in a mayor. But people won't vote for her. And he sat back and he said, why? I said, because she's black and she's a lesbian and we're not there yet. And he said, Ken is Chicago. I said, trust me, would I vote for her? Absolutely. No one else will. <laughs> so I did. True story. And mm-hmm. uh, I actually texted him uh, this morning. Um, and over the course of the, the campaign, I've, I've so Lori somebody that I've, I admire. So every time I see her, we have really great conversation. She has great ideas. She's invited me to some of her policy meetings. I, I like her a lot. And when she pulled it off, I was proud of her, for one. So I'm very proud of her and happy for her. But it also renewed a sense in humanity that I lost in 2016, that, oh, my God, people aren't as bad as I think they are. Um, and, you know, of course, my guard is still I'm, – I'm always going to be a little bit guarded and walk into situations with, with a bit of a guard. But in that moment, it was so good to be wrong. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It, it, was, it was so good. I was so happy that humanity proved me wrong. So that's, that was election night. And also uh, Maria Hayden in the 49th uh-huh. Ward, who uh-huh. is an amazing woman. Mm-hmm. Super amazing and humble. Not only did she run, she won against a incumbent. Thank you. No, mm-hmm. no runoff. She mm-hmm. won over sixty percent of the vote. Um, I know. Yes, another uh, another um, you know black lesbian um, who I, I once again same thing renewed sense of. This world is not as bad as maybe I think it is sometimes, um, and she's deserving of it. Um, mm-hmm. So it, w- it was a great night, and there was also in, in the 20th Ward and the 40th Ward, Nicole Johnson, who's a, a very bright African-American woman, um, Andre Vasquez, he's a, a Latino, a former rapper, uh, battle rapper. They both pushed to the runoff. Um, and in the 40th Ward, I believe that alderman had been in office for too long. Let's just put it that way. For too long, uh, over over 10 years for sure. Um, so it was an amazing night. And there were some things that you, some people that I really wanted to get through that didn't. Um, but overall, I'm happy. And it was not a daily. And that's, that makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really. I mean, you know, when you stop and you look at it, and like I said, this yes, it's going to be a runoff, but Chicago will have a black woman as yes. mayor. Yes, and and Tony Preckwinkle is also, oh my God, incredibly smart for one, mm-hmm. incredibly mm-hmm. gifted, um, and she's a unifier. Um, and I will say. Her win wasn't her. Her being in the runoff was not surprising because of the connection she's made with so many people. And I'm not saying that as a, as a negative or as a dig. I'm saying it as a it wasn't surprising because of mm-hmm. the connection. And in Chicago, you need connections. Um, so it didn't surprise me that she made the runoff. I mean, 
because you stop and you think, okay, so that was 2016. And then 2017, we had a lot of women get, get elected, black women. We had a lot of black women move up, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. in this past election. And I was thinking about one of, the, one of the articles that you sent me. And, you know, I can recall after 2017 being in the airport and this white woman walked up to me and she's on the phone talking to a friend of hers about the election and how great it was and how wonderful it was that black people mm-hmm. had come out. And she looked at me and she smiled. She said, I'm talking about you. Thank you, black woman. Thank you, black woman. And there was a part mm-hmm. of me that just wanted to slug her. But, you know, <laughs> I get it. But there's a part also that, you know, and you talk about a Democratic Party and, you know, yes. not taking us for granted. And, you know, yes. and so now I see a whole bunch of people, and I know a lot of my progressive liberal friends who aren't black, were like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, look, Chicago is going to have a black woman, man. And, like, and that this is how they measure their success, that somehow or other we can forget about the patriarchy, the racism, all these things that have been here because suddenly we've elected, you know, oh, we're going to have two black women. Yes. So, and I'm so happy you brought that up. And the name of the article is Blind Spot, uh, Myths mm-hmm. uh, to Move Ahead in 2020. But the, the thing that we have to look at, especially the fact that there are two black women um, in the runoff, mayor of Chicago, where mayor of Chicago is going to have a black female mayor, um, is not because, and, and, and this is going to be really hard to explain, but I'm going to do it as short as I can. These two women are qualified. Uh, they are overly qualified, and both of them can do this to do justice to this to this job. They've also had to work harder than any of their white male uh, counterparts. So it's not serendipitous, and it's not a reflection of of of, of being so progressive that we've moved past it. No. They were simply just the best, uh, the best of the best candidates. Uh, out of the 14 candidates we had for mayor, I will say 12 of them, I'm sorry, 11 of them were great candidates, with mm-hmm. the exception of Daly, McCarthy, and Willie Wilson. The rest of them were all good candidates. Um, so I don't, I don't want anyone to look at what's happening in Chicago right now as the pulse of America we have not moved that far ahead. Mm. These were just simply better candidates. Okay, but when you okay, but you know, I you know, but I hear you, but I also hear I expect something to come out of that because look at what happened. I mean, Stacey Abrams, who I feel was robbed. Yeah. Okay. She, she was did robbed. An ex- yes. She did an excellent job. I mean, campaigning. Then she does the response to the state of the state, hit it out the park, and yes. you know. They are incredible black women. But like you said, yeah. these two women in, in Chicago, Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. they are very qualified candidates. Absolutely. And, you know, it seems like often our progressive things want to put that savior cape on somebody. And, it, and right now it seems like, oh, black women, black women, and like, oh, well, if we just come out and vote and if we do this and if we do that, the world is going to be a better place. But it takes more than black women. Yeah, we so we all as a, everybody has to keep enriching and supporting and uplifting black women. 
for one. We all have to do that. We can't look for black women to save us. We have to look to black women for leadership. Mm. And there's a difference. There's a difference between looking for black women to kind of come in, save us, and then we move on past them, which is what, something the Democratic Party has done for years. Uh, we, we, you know, Democrats go to black women to get the vote, and then we ignore black women. What we need to do is listen to black women, follow their lead, and, and, and support their leadership. And in the case of Stacey Abrams, um, that's also a complex situation because voter suppression is a big deal in Georgia. Um, and I believe that if voter suppression weren't what it is and they had an actual election, a free election, because they didn't have that, um, mm. I, I believe the numbers would have been better. But Georgia um, cleared a lot of the, the voter rolls. But this is why, I, and I'm going to say this, I'm not okay with voter suppression, but I also look at, at, at black people, black and brown folks especially, they don't start clearing those voter rolls after each election. That's why it's important. If there's an election for dog catcher, you need to vote. Mm. You need to go vote. Because the way they clear those voter rolls, and I don't think a lot of people understand this, these are people that haven't voted. And I, it's, every state is different. But there's a, there's a limit to uh, – there's a, a max of time in which they clear the voter rolls. I don't think it's okay – but I digress. So you have mm-hmm. to know, okay, I have not voted in the last two municipal state presidential elections. You need to vote. Mm-hmm. You, you got to get out and vote. So, yes, I feel sorry for the voter rolls being cleared. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, why haven't you voted in, in a decade? Where have you been for the last 10 years? Um, but that's what happened with Stacey Abrams, voter suppression. You know, uh, yeah, I, and and I often wonder too. You know how just how when Barack Obama got elected mm-hmm. president, they said, "Oh, you know, suddenly we're in this post-racial America." So now you've got black women who are moving up. Stacey Abrams. I've heard people say Stacey Abrams, twenty twenty. Um, Kamala mm-hmm. Harris. I mean, you wonder uh, like, are they hoping? Okay, well, we tried a black man. Now we're gonna try a black woman, and then suddenly our every, it will free of us out all our past sins. We can make that turn. But it's more than just black people that you, I find that often, you know, haven't you reached a point where in some ways you're kind of tired of explaining racism to progressives oh, and liberals and that it's alive and yes. rampant? Every day, every, like literally every day of my life. Um, <laughs> every, every day because I've gotten to a place where it is – often that I'm explaining systemic racism versus racism and what it means to be racist. And, and it is, it's, it's mind numbing that in 2019, we still have to explain so much and I have to do it. And, and I keep this in mind as a black man, I have to explain it with a smile on my face because I can't mm. be angry mm-hmm. and I have to do it with grace and dignity and integrity without raising my voice is tiresome because sometimes, because I'm human, you get to a place where you have to say, how do you not know this in 2019? How do you not, where have you been? 
And another problem, and, and I'm going to say it with, with racism, is the way that, I mean this in systemic racism, the way they're tends to be a shield over older white Americans Um, because I've heard time and time again, well, you know, they are older. They're in a different time. They don't know better. They need to come into 2019. I don't need to go back to 1958. And I think Mm -hmm. that needs to be the dialogue. I don't care how old they are. I don't care where they come from. The important thing is, It is now 2019. We need everyone to step into 2019. No one in this country should have to go back to the 50s and 60s to level a playing field of diplomacy and conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and even like when you talk about voter suppression and there's mm-hmm. those two conversations. The one conversation that we need to say to people, like, you need to be out there voting for dog catcher, you know, yes. school commissioner, everything. everything. But then there's the other thing, too, where the same people are like, oh, well, you know, see what happens when you all come out to vote and explain to them why many of us have not come out to vote, what has happened mm-hmm. to our vote. I mean, it's sort of like this is real people. So it's almost like, you have to have a split personality. The one thing that you want to talk to, you know, the brothers and sisters, but then the other thing that you want to talk to, to these people, and like you said, trying to remain calm in a way that's going to build and not, you know, really turn things off. But, you know, isn't there a moment when you want to be that angry black person, you know, to sort of say, hey, like you said, come into 2019, damn it. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I read somewhere, and I, I believe, oh, I, I hate misquoting people. I believe it was James Baldwin. Um, but to be a black man in America is always to be a little bit angry. To be black in America is always to be a little bit angry on the inside. Um, and I can understand that uh, because we do have to change and, and, and monitor and just be, we, we always have to be well put together. And there are moments where, you know, I, I have issues too. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I have a grandmother who's, who's elderly and sometimes not feeling so well. And sometimes my car tire is flat and sometimes I don't sleep long enough. Sometimes I'm human and I have bad days too. And I think that's how we – it is a problem, especially when you're in corporate America or political America, because you always, as a person of color, have to remember you can't be angry. Um, if you're a woman, you can't be emotional, no matter what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can never <laughs> yeah. be emotional. Um, mm-hmm. And if, if you're LGBTQ, you can never – you always have to remember whatever you're saying not to be – quote, unquote, too dramatic or too delicate, either one. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's a lot. Um, it, it's a lot to always remember before opening your mouth. So I can't wait to get to a place as a society where we can accept that, hey, these are imperfect people just like everybody else. Um, and sometimes they are angry. But, but the one thing I want to point out with the angry thing is I find it, sad and disarming that so many times in this country we look at the person of color who's being angry, but we don't look at what has made them angry. That's not the dialogue. 
And I think mm-hmm. that needs to change also. Instead of saying, why is Ken so angry? He's so angry. Let's take a moment. Why is Ken so angry? What happened before that? And let's look at the root of the problem, um, especially if the person is not a typical angry person. So that's something we also have to do to move forward to this real post racial America that everyone believes that we've already gotten to, that we're not there yet. We are creating change here. And um, they decided, you know, they should talk about Detroit. And um, here are all these people from all over, and they were talking about Detroit. But what they were seeing, were talking about primarily, was what was shiny and new, you know, Mm -hmm. what was shiny and new and and how great this was, and not recognizing what had happened about the people who were still there, about the struggles that were still there. And it was funny, and they said, and so they had asked me, you know, to do this opening plenary. And so I got this this panel, which had someone from uh, one of the First Nations, uh, someone who was African-American involved in labor, and then an immigrant. And when we started doing it, and I said, because we, we want to tell people how Detroit came back. And so I opened it up with, I said, you know, I said, let me borrow from that great philosopher, L.L. Cool J. I said, mm. don't call it a comeback. We've Love been it. here for years. And talk yeah. about, you know, uh, the land being stolen from Native people, um, mm-hmm. black people coming up through the northern migration, the underground world, and immigrants who made it like the first stop after Ellis Island was to come to Detroit to work because they were looking for, you know, a better life for those families. All of these are issues that are still here today. And sometimes we're wanting to to look at the shiny and new. You forget that some of the stuff has been here and we haven't made it there yet. And you can't buy just like pushing the shine, putting the shiny and new up on a pedestal and pushing the real America people of color, you know, to the side. Correct. We have to we have to have an America that includes everybody. And and that's where I, I think we need to get to. And we have to get there by actually including um, you know, people of color, um, women, LGBTQ to the table as equal partners at the table, which is something that's not being done. Um, we are not doing that, and we have to do that. It's not, it's not being done anywhere in this country at a, at a level that I feel substantiates change. We're not doing it yet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so we had, you know, we had, uh, which is interesting to me, we had what they called the blue wave, or some people called it the pink wave for women. But there were a lot mm-hmm. of, of, of queer people who made a difference in the 2000. Um, 18 midterm elections. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, how do we amplify our voices and make it be more inclusive? I mean, like you said, sure. I mean, I sit back and wonder, you know, because I said, oh, she's a lesbian too. And well, you know, I hope she, I mean, I was watching the Chicago elections and say, I hope that she, she shows well or comes in it. I yes. had talked to Maria Hayden and I said, you know what, this Everything about her needs to be there and, and do that. 
And I mean, it's like I was ready to do my, my happy dance all last night and this morning, <laughs> seeing where they both did. But how do we yes. not only just sort of say, well, hey, you know, that that's part of our, our pedigree, but that we're really changing policy and discussions about LGBTQ, sure. particularly people who are black and brown and gay. Yes. So this, this, is, this is something I talk about in, in the Myth uh, article. Mm-hmm. I, I despise the word blue wave. I, it drives me crazy because what it does is it says that the Democrats are here, we're better than everyone else, and we're taking over. That's not true. Um, I, prefer, I prefer other terms, but I, I don't like blue wave. Mm-hmm. The big thing, if you look at across the country – on a on a national level, the a lot of a lot of places what they're calling diversity is actually just democratic white women winning. That's mm. not diversity. And and I'm and, and I'm gonna be clear, I think it's great that progressive um, women are are running. I think it's a wonderful thing and they're winning. Awesome. But let's not call it diversity because then when we hear the word diversity it leads us to think that we're there. We're not there. When you look across the country at suburban areas, because metropolitan areas are just a small part of America, look all across the country at suburban areas, rural areas. Democrats that won were not of color, and they were not uh, LGBTQ. They were progressive white women. Mm-hmm. We have to – what I would like to see is qualified candidates able to win in their own spaces, in their own home turf. I'm, I'm very proud of um, Representative Lauren Underwood, who became the youngest black woman ever sworn into Congress, who won in a very, um, yeah, a, a very white area. But you know what she did? And, and this, is, this is what I loved about her. She wore her natural hair, mm-hmm. which is super important. And I applaud it, and I'm super proud of her. Um, but what she did and how she worked her campaign is she didn't stray away from the fact that I belong here. She addressed it. And because of the team that she was around and the support she had in her community, she won. I want to see that all over the country, though. I want to see candidates of color that are qualified and LGBTQ candidates that are qualified be able to stand in their stand in their truth and stand in their their what makes them unique and what makes them awesome in front of these communities and have the community support them um, because one of the and I've said this multiple times uh, I, I live in in a very suburban county um, and there are times where I've been told by um, others, you know, you have to tone it down a little bit. We think you're great, but, you know, we want to have you in our rooms, and we need you to tone it down. Now, mind you, in, when I go to Chicago, where, where you know, my home, I'm considered mm-hmm. a moderate. Um, my Chicago friends, would nev- they don't think I'm as progressive as I need to be. They don't think I'm as radical as I need to be. But in the suburbs, to say something like Black Lives Matter, that's considered super radical, like you have to calm down. Well, why is saying that my life is important 
now a radical thing. Mm-hmm. So that that's and, and why is saying that I support being LGBTQ? Why is that radical? It's not radical. But what happens in these spaces, in these suburban and these rural spaces, is there's this big effort to make you like everyone else. And I will never be like everyone else. And people of color and LGBTQ, our lives are different, our experiences are different, our journeys are different, our walks are different. Instead of making them smaller, we need our communities to embrace, hey, this is a different point of view, it's a different walk. Let's listen to it. Let's follow it and let's see where it leads. So we, we need that. People, candidates of color, LGBTQ, we need just a moment to have our uniqueness shine through a little bit without opposition and without trying to change it. So that's my yeah. answer on how, to, how, how can we get more elected uh-huh. in 2020. Let them be them. Let us be us. And, you know, and I think, too, because, like, one of the things that you didn't mention, like, you know, it's like you're fiscally, con- fiscally conservative. And a lot of, of black people are. And, you know, and really we need to be able to have all those conversations, you know. Yes. And it's sort of like where at some point if you, like you said, if you go to have that kind of conversation, people sort of like look at, look at you like, huh? Or to, right. to find that common ground. Because often, if, unless we only want to represent communities of color, we have to yeah. be able to, to talk and to, mm-hmm. to show that, I mean, and really, because we have to walk, talk, and live it every day, we do have very varying viewpoints. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we, mm-hmm. and we have as many, well, like you said, not only white people want to put us in a silo, but black people want to put you in a silo. And Absolutely. That's just not doing it, you know. No, no. We need all of those experiences to come to the table. And when, when I get into, you know, black political circles sometimes, it, it, it works great. Um, and then we get to the fact that I'm happily married to a man. And then it's like, oh, now we have a problem. And you know, as I like to say, Black Lives Matter unless you're unless you're LGBTQ, and then it's kind mm-hmm. of a question mark. All we all need to stand on our own platforms and be be. We need to we need to internally be okay with ourselves, but we also need others to respect us and respect our differences. Not necessarily like or agree with, but respect it without trying to change it. We're going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. We're talking with political strategist from Chicago, Ken Mejia Beal. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. 
Welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. We're talking with Chicago political strategist Ken Mahia Bill. Do you want to, you don't want to blindly go into like, and that's the bothering like the blue wave and like everything has to be yeah. like Democrat. Well, you know what? Everybody, to me, you have to listen to and think about what they have to say. Lord knows Virginia gives, has given us enough to have to think about and look at, Ooh, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, and the, it's funny you bring up Virginia because so something I mentioned because a lot of people were very um, upset when, when uh, Donald Trump had a, um, he had an event and there were a lot of African Americans there. And I, there were a lot of people on social media like, why are they there? And as I said, that's because a lot of us, especially people of color, have been in urban areas. We've seen what democratic rule left unattended can do, and we're looking for something else. So you go to Virginia with all of that that happened with – I'm going to only talk about the governor and the attorney general with the black mm-hmm. face. Mm-hmm. 60% of African Americans still support them and do not want them to resign, and that number is high. And I've had progressives say, why is that? Why is that? That's because people of color in this country – have a secret and silent understanding that we are not liked and that Mm. we are ridiculed and made fun of behind our backs. And that's what I need progressives to understand. That's why why the 60% of African-American voters in Virginia don't want the governor impeached because they believe that all people do it, not Democrat and Republican. And that's the one thing I I really wish that more – more uh, white progressives understood is that in the black and brown communities, all we see are Democrats. So we don't have that Democrat Republican thing. We do have, you know, just our own, because of our journeys, a lot of, of, of racial views. And that, yeah, that's, that should be the narrative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, it, and it's funny that people, I mean, that, that people don't understand, you know, and like, that that we do have that, like you said, we yeah. know. I mean, you can walk in a room and you know that if something is a news, something there's something's going to be that that either there's going to be that conversation where you're supposed to be the interpreter of all things black, or there's yeah. going to be a strange silence where you know that they were talking about it before you got there. Yeah, you know, and then they there's yeah. suddenly this strange void. So it's a, like we know. Yeah, even, um, even in the most liberal progressive group, and that and that's what I think more progressives need to understand is I've been in all kinds of groups and all kinds of rooms with all kinds of people. The worst forms of systemic racism I've experienced within the Democratic Party, because Republicans, when they do have racial issues, they tend to just avoid you. Mm. They 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 avoid you. It's the Democrats, and, and this is not just my experience, but other people I know that work within politics that will say the weirdest, off-the-wall things to you, the rudest things, uh, treat you with the most disrespect. Um, as I like to say, especially within the Democratic Party, you see a lot of, you see a lot of uh, black and brown volunteers – But then when you start looking at who's on the payroll, it changes. Why Mm -hmm. is that? 
Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. But that's, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, and we have to, before we can do the work, we have to talk about the work that needs to be done. That's where the conversations come in. Bernie Sanders. I mean, you know, I, I listened to him. He said, you know, where a lot of the things like what, um, Alexandria, um, how am I, Bill Cortez, yeah. Yeah. Why, you know, he said, a lot of things that she's talking about and different ones are talking about, he said that I started them, you know. And, you know, I know that there are things that in life that I have started, <laughs> but I know that I don't have to bring it into the, to the, the finish line. You know, he said, that, that old uncle, you know, it's like, you know, well, but dude, you know, <laughs> it, it's time. So let me, let me say this. A lot of the ideas that um, uh, Senator Sanders uh, proclaims that he started were actually discussed by Fannie Lou Hamer. They were discussed mm-hmm. by Representative Shirley Chisholm. So once again, let's give let's give Black women their credit um, <laughs> where credit is where credit is due. With that said, with that said, I my feelings of about Senator uh, Sanders, I like him. I'm not saying I'm, I don't know who I'm voting for yet. So let me just put that mm-hmm. out there because I don't want anybody <laughs> adding me on Twitter mm-hmm. or Facebook. Don't do it. I don't know. I like him, though. Um, he has a lot of good ideas. I'm going to see where this plays out. Um, so far, there's only um, maybe two candidates where I'm ab- they're an absolute no for me, um, and I'll keep that private, but there are only two. Mm-hmm. But Senator Sanders isn't one of them. Uh, it's, a, it's a possible, just like with everyone else. I think he has a lot of great ideas. He has good energy. Um, you know, he's learning to brush his hair properly. So, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm digging it. And I think he might have learned a lesson. And I also think, on top of the lesson he learned from running the first time, I think the Democratic Party learned a lesson. Um, about listening to the voters in the states that actually um, help to win elections, because we do have the Electoral College, which I think should be abolished. But Senator Sanders won Wisconsin. He won Pennsylvania. He won Michigan. Um, And when it came to the general, Democrats lost those states. So Mm -hmm. I think Senator Sanders has a purpose uh, whether he's the one to show us to the finish line or not is up to the American voter. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a part of me that, you know, old white men just sort of make me bristle. <laughs> you know, and, but like you said, it's early, and I'm waiting to see what's going to happen Absolutely. and, and go ahead with it. So yes. let, me take, let me take a quick sip of water here, and then I'm going sure. to – and then we're going to talk about that national emergency. <laughs> You mean the one, um, the water in Flint? Is that the national emergency? Well, are you mean Trump's imaginary emergency? <laughs> that one. Okay, we can talk about it. For me, a national mm-hmm. emergency is the water in Flint. It is yes. schools where teachers are bringing in bottled water across the yes. country. It's our crumbling infrastructure. It's the mm-hmm. opioid uh, epidemic. It's like mm-hmm. unemployment. I mean, it's, it's like all of these things, not this national shift things around to build a wall that's 
clearly not going to stop it, <laughs> and which has, I mean, I don't see us building a wall through Canada where people can also just walk right across. I Absolutely. Mean, um, a national emergency is that I cannot feel safe in a church, in schools, at a concert without a homegrown terrorist with a gun, right. which has, you know, he's been able to automate because there's very lax when killing me, my children, my neighbors, coming up in my church mm-hmm. and shooting things up. And these are all national emergencies, which, you know, I, to me, have not been addressed. And the fact and, that, like you mm-hmm. said, he had two years when he had his whole team, and he couldn't, but now all of a sudden it's a national emergency where he's going to take money and take money away from programs that, that, have, that money has been designated for, some that deal with infrastructure. Correct. Well, let's talk about the, the, the fake emergency, as I like to call it. It's not real. So, one, there's nothing illegal about coming to the border seeking asylum. Two, the reason these, these caravans are in caravans, for one, is simply safer to travel in large groups, especially when you're traveling through countries. Can you, if, if, if you are a mother with children or a father with children and you understand that you might not make it along this journey – you're going to want to get with other people. There's safety in numbers. So it's not a bad caravan. It's not a gang. It's simply it's pure logic. So that's number mm-hmm. two. Number three, the reason for these caravans are due to the heinous manner in which the Reagan administration invoked itself into Central American and South American wars. We got involved in those when we should have minded our own business, and we created this disaster in which now those chickens have come home to roost. Just as right now you have the Trump administration talking about going to Venezuela and and dealing, stay out of Venezuela. Let the Venezuelan people handle their, their government on their own. We need to get to that place. So those are all three things before I even get to the wall. Um, But the wall itself is a joke. Um, I believe and this is all my opinion, when you, I believe in following the money. Mm-hmm. I, find it, I find it funny that as we're talking about this wall, the Trump administration has lifted the tariff on Russian steel. So not to mince words, I 100% believe that they are going to build this wall with Russian steel. I believe this is some giant blackmail attempt that we are all witnessing, and no one can actually put their finger on it. Um, I find it ironic that a lot of the uh, Trump's closest um, confidants are Russians and Russians who deal in steel. I find it all to be a little bit too coincidental for my liking. Um, So there's a reason for all of this. My disappointment with this national emergency is that the Republicans have not shut it down. Mm-hmm. They should, they, because the Democrats have shut it down. They are staying united, and they're saying, we're not doing this. I need Republicans to do their job and defend the American people and not the Russian puppet that has been put into the White House. That's what I need them to do. 
there is a reason for, I mean, I think that there's, there's a reason for a two-party system. I mean, three-party yes. system. I mean, there's a diversity of ideas that sort of come in. But what I'm seeing from the Republicans, which is just like so mind-boggling, I mean, you might hear them for a moment talk like they, they have a brain of their own or a free will, can, do. can think even critically. But then next thing you know, they're like getting in line. Mm-hmm. And throwing, throwing, like you said, what their job is, that they're supposed to represent the people, mm-hmm. out, the, out the window. And, you know, and it sort of makes it hard for you to sort of, you know, where is, you know, if, if there's ever a chance to get many people to come over to the Republican side and even to listen, you know, show a little backbone. Well, and, and this is why I – it all goes into the bag of why I don't like the blue wave, uh, why mm-hmm. I don't well, – I, I believe in people over party. Mm-hmm. We need to get to a place where we look at issues. I don't need politicians to do what's right by the people and their constituency. I don't, I don't ever want Democrats just doing stuff because other Democrats are doing it and vice versa. Um, I want our senators, our congressmen to do what is right, what is morally sound. Um, that's what I want, regardless of party. So I believe, and this is what makes me angry, I believe that the Republicans that voted to put in Kavanaugh believe that he did those horrible things to that uh, Dr. Ford. I do believe mm-hmm. they believe that he did it. But the party, the, the pride in the party – will not allow them to go against the party. And that's why we have to get away from this party commanding thing uh, that's going on. Because one of my pet peeves, I have a lot of pet peeves, um, (laughs) clearly, but one of my big ones is when I mention things about, you know, the Democratic Party, there's always one person, that's why I always say don't at me, that'll say, Ken, we need to unite as a party. We need to stay united. No, my job is to be able to look myself in the mirror. That's my first job, and be proud Mm -hmm. of what I'm saying and doing. My second job, and I thank my grandmother for this every day, is to be able to go back to where I come from and look those people in the eyes, and we look at each other with pride. Those are what I need to do. Uniting with the party is not on my top ten list. My job is to be a good human being and to be the person that 79th needs me to be and Mm -hmm. come back home and show pride and show that I'm actually doing something for the people. That's what my goals are. Uniting uniting a party, I would love a united party, but I'm not going to spite my morals my values, and my history to unite with people that don't care about any of those, period, point blank, not doing it. Exactly. You know, and, and, and when you stop and you, I mean, and it's so, when they get so much in line, and, and I guess and that's the other thing that, you know, you stand up and you fight for certain things. And mm-hmm. when you've looked at so many times that they have just like, I mean, look at, all of the things that, that, that Trump has, clearly you see him lie, and then he says this, and, they, you know, they get in line, they change their mind. Absolutely. But the other thing which is interesting where you see, like, Kavanaugh went through all of this stuff, and they still got him. And who was it? Al Franken, you know, hey, he fell on the sword, I'm gone, you know. 
And it's yeah. a quick tra- that for the Democrats, are like, well, they should all just like resign, fall on the sword. And too many of them have. And, you know, yeah. and it doesn't mean that they're right or wrong, but it's sort of like there are things. It's not about parties. It's about our country that we should, yeah. we should fight on. And, you know, and so many, I mean, if you're not Native American, and I would also put, and if you weren't brought over on a slave ship, correct? you know, a forced immigration, you come from immigrant, immigrant families. Yes. You know. Absolutely. And to now, to, to, to say, suddenly it looked like, and when they talk about immigrant, they're black, they're brown, uh, they're Middle Eastern. Everybody. And suddenly these of, are, yeah. We, yeah, all of these people are not. And now I know that I could have someone who was from a certain part of Europe, any part of Europe, but who, who clearly on the outside looked like he was white. Mm-hmm. and walk in with a, a brown or black person with an accent, particularly if they're Latino, and someone would mm-hmm. be more likely to call ICE on the Latino person just because. And when Correct. did we get here? You know, and uh, that's where well, we're at. I will say we got here, uh, I believe we got here in the 1980s. I think that's when it all started. Before the 1980s, we didn't, uh, we didn't have this anti-immigration wave. Uh, what happened during the recession of the 80s is uh, you had a lot of black and white uh, middle-class families that lost income due to the recession. And you had a lot of Latinos who were small business owners. They were uh, laborers. So what it looked like to a lot of the black and white mid- working class is, wow, these Latinos, they're not losing money. They must be taking jobs. Well, the reality is they just never lost the money you lost because they mm. invested in themselves. But that's an econ- economic um, point, talking point that you and I will have to dig into at another time because that's a whole other mm-hmm. story. But that's when it began, when other people looked at the Latino, the Latinx community and said, they have something that I don't, they must be doing something or taking something from me, when in reality, that never happened. It never happened, and it never will happen, ever. Uh-huh. I grew up amongst a, a diverse group of people, and that made me better. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, you know? me too. And, and, that, and, that's, and that's what I want to continue to see. But it, is, it has just gotten to the point where, you know, like I said, there are those conversations that you see, and we'll get back. See, I, you just want to keep talking to me. We're going to, we're going to come back. And I think, because I would like to do um, later on a deeper dive to talk about immigration sure. and who does and who doesn't. Because, you know, you've seen things. You've seen waves of, of pitting people against each other. But we're all mm-hmm. down at the bottom end of this ladder, and there's you know, ways of pitting it together. But um, in the time that we have, I want to, you know, there's a couple of other things that I want to talk about. Okay. <laughs> sure. All right. Sure. Okay. We're going to take our second break here in our conversation with political strategist and activist Ken Mahia Beal. We'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. 
You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here talking with Ken Mejia Beal on Collections by Michelle Brown. The Oscars. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> okay so they I won't be from... shady, I promise. I promise I will not be shady. Okay. Okay. All right. So they talked about, okay, at one point in time they talked about how, you know, Oscar was so white. So mm-hmm. now people are going to go, oh, look, hey, you know, look here, black person here, black person there, guy. There are all these winners, but, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, I thought that the biggest thing, okay, whether or not you, you, you liked or disliked the Green Book, okay, mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that the man who the story was about, his family was not consulted, and no. the actor who spoke on behalf of the family when, they, when the one who wrote it, Accepting his award, they ignored him. They, they didn't even mm-hmm. mention him. That, to me, was beyond disrespectful. Well, this is the so this is what um, the Oscar. I I don't watch the Oscars because I um, I've grown tired of the ridiculousness of the Oscars. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that. Um, uh, okay, and then full disclosure, I didn't watch them either. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, I didn't watch. But this is the problem mm-hmm. with The Green Book. The Green Book and other movies like it, this was a great story about a queer African-American, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and it turned into a movie about his um, white driver that saved his life and taught mm-hmm. him the ways of the world. That is the offensive part. Um, it's kind of like the movie uh, Blindside that was made years ago. And they made it seem like this kid had no idea how to play football before Sandra Bullock's character met him. Thank you. That's not true. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I get irri- I'm irritated with, with, with black characters not being able to be their own saviors. So that's one. Second problem with the Oscars is when, when you are an African-American woman, that wins an Oscar, besides uh, Regina King, which who I thought was great. The leading up to that, though, you had to be like a maid or an alcoholic mm-hmm. or someone that's be like you could never just be. There was a great movie with, um, and I can't remember her name. She was in the Hunger Games. Uh, she was in a movie called Joy, and she just played a, a lady who invented a mop and sold it on QVC. Um, Jennifer Lawrence was her name. Yes. Mm-hmm. She won an Oscar for that. I mm-hmm. guarantee you, they are not, the Oscars are not going to give an Oscar to a black or a brown woman for inventing a mop. Like, there has to be this huge, extraordinary story. Um, so that's another thing. Also with, um, I know Queen was a big winner. Um, they completely made... Uh, Freddie Mercury very heteronormative, 
Um, and it, it was, it was, you know, they kind of took all, all the fun stuff out of there. So with the Oscars, the Oscars is today, because, um, you know, the Oscars so white, hashtag or whatever. The Oscars today is the same thing the Oscars was 50 years ago. Movies that make heterosexual white men comfortable. That's all the mm-hmm. Oscars is. That's who gets the Oscar. So if you can do that, you're eligible for an Oscar. So I don't watch. It's a waste of my time. I like to watch movies that invoke change and are provocative and actually tell a story, the gritty story, the ugly story. That's what I want to see. Um, but people like the Oscars. They like to look at um, the clothes they'll never be able to afford and the Oscar that they'll never have and that's their thing. They can go for it. But I don't put so much weight into Oscar movies and Oscar uh-huh. controversy because I know that that world is not for me. It was never for me, and it will never be for me. Now, I'll tell you, you know, but the only thing that I, that I, I, that I love was the image of Billy Porter. Okay, Rocket Baby. You know, I love his <laughs> outfit, you know. Yes. I loved his outfit. A lot of people I would did. wear it mm-hmm. myself, you know. I just, I just like that and – the fact that it has made so many straight men uncomfortable, you know, and it's like, you know, Billy's been doing that for longest yeah. and, you know, go ahead, brother, you know, go ahead, you know, now, yeah, well, whatever gonna, makes him happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, now I did go see a lot of the movies cause I like movies, you know, and I went and saw if Bill street could talk and it was at, yes. um, it was at a suburban theater and mm-hmm. me and my partner were the only two black people in there. The rest of the world was white. And I'm going mm-hmm. like, and you could tell that they clearly didn't understand it. And one, all one woman, <laughs> white woman, she said, was, gee, it sure was long. And, you know, and, and I, when we were leaving, I said, I would have loved to have seen a film festival where they showed the 13th, Ava DuVernay's uh, uh, film, yes. the 13th, if Beale yes. Street could talk and then have a conversation about incarceration of African-American men. Yes. And just African-Americans in general. I said, I would love to see that as a film festival and have that conversation because it's what happens. It's what it talked about, what happens to the the family, how it affected the Mm -hmm. community, how, you know, and this this stuff is still going on. It's still, and that's why it's important to talk about it. Um, we can't sweep it under a rug. And, and, and if I have time, even in Illinois right now, we're talking about uh, the legalization of marijuana. And I am a, I'm a proponent for the legalization of marijuana um, because I believe in social justice. And even um, I went to like a town hall and I heard really intelligent uh, candidates who are still on the fence about it. And their issue is, well, it's health. And we don't know if it's healthy. Um, and these are, people that I assume drink alcohol, uh, but I digress. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about the fact that when we go to court, the incarceration rates for black and brown people that are caught with small amounts of marijuana is higher than anyone else. I think about the fact that they're being shut out of jobs Mm -hmm. and having to turn to a life of crime just to make ends meet because they can't get a job in corporate America because they have these strikes against them. So I I think that's kind of why we view movies and things differently because of our experience. It's all about our path. Um, Like for me, 
legalization of marijuana, for example, is not about everybody going out and, and getting stoned. It's about releasing decent people from, from these shackles um, and able to get jobs, able to get employment, um, able to provide for their families, able to be proud of where they live. We have to we have to do that. And it all starts with that one little thing. And it seems little, but it's huge. And I think sometimes when we look at African-American movies um, with non-African-American audiences, it's hard to translate that because it's not in the forefront like it is for, for, for you and I. That's in our forefront because um, we all know someone that's in jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all know somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, I have friends who are not black or brown, blots, and they'll say, I don't know anybody in jail. And it's, it's kind of funny to me. <laughs> well, you know, but it's that's interesting. why these are in our forefront. Yeah. The thing that was interesting to me also, because, you know, when I saw the 13th and I saw it at the same theater, and the thing was, and I don't know, um, in the metro Detroit area, at the theaters where everybody went, it was shown at like an odd time when you know most people won't go. go. Or right. it was shown at these like sort of art house theaters, which were out in the suburbs where many of us aren't going to go because guess what? They're out in the suburbs where we know, hey, if your taillight is out, you, right. you drive it a little fast, too slow, you might go to jail. So why are you right. going out here to get this out? So that was the other part, which was amazing, which, which never ceases to, to – it's mind-boggling to me, that when – why, when they release them where we really need to be talking about it, it's like, yes, this is my community, and this is what happens when, when – cousin, brother, sister, whatever, takes a plea and they're gone and the family has to take care of this extra child or we can't get jobs. Or even when you talk about medical marijuana, they're saying that Mm -hmm. it's going to be a great industry. But guess what? Most black people can't pass the hurdles to open up a shop. Correct. The license will be too expensive, and I'm sure you won't be able to – I mean – my hope is, especially in Illinois, when they do, if they do legalize it, to make it legal, but to make it right by the community, to expunge these records, make it so that, you know, the guy that's been selling marijuana since the 70s that you guys keep locking up can also partake in this business, along with the guy who, you know, the guy who just graduated college and has a degree in business admin. I, I, I think we have to make it right and equitable. I don't want equality. I want equity. We have to make it equitable. Excuse me. And when you talk about incarceration, I mean, I thought it was great mm-hmm. that in Florida, okay, all these people now can get can vote. But, you know, that's that because I know here in Michigan, I mean, if you haven't been sentenced, I mean, it's, it's very complicated, but you can still vote. But many people Correct. think, oh, I can't vote. And that needs to be talked about. I mean, they talk about paying your debt to society, but then block the pathway for you to be a member of society, to come back in and, and contribute and vote. What, how, do we, how do we, I mean, how do we raise the issue to talk about incarceration and how really unfair it is 
to communities of color, if you're black and brown. Right. We, uh, we're doing it right now just by talking about it. I write about it often. Um, I write I, – I will never – I will never not write about what's happening in black and brown communities um, and, the, and the disparity in sentencing and the disparity in just being pulled over in general. I will not stop talking about it. And there are activists across this country who, no matter how much um, the mainstream tries to radicalize us and make us um, just these crazy people, we're going to keep talking. We're not going anywhere. And we've, and as I like to say, we've met each other. We've gone out to dinner with each other. We have brother and sistership. So we're not going anywhere. We're going to keep talking. That's how we started. We're going to keep talking, and we're getting elected into office, and we have the ear of politicians. We are going to make some change happen. That's what we're going to do. You know, and then and briefly to talk uh, briefly about green, because I just see it. I mean, when I was talking to, like you said, all this, you know, white feel good people, and they were saying, oh, that was horrible in the South. And, you know, it's especially when the police pulled you over. I said, you know what? That wasn't just in the South, and it wasn't just way back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I said, I said, you know, and I, and I, and I was talking about it, I said, you know, I don't go visit certain people in certain suburbs because after dark, because especially if I'm by myself, because I'm a black woman driving through your white neighborhood, and I can get pulled over, and he's like, oh, that would never happen. I said, yes, it does. I mean, so it happens that every day. Is, it happens every day. And that people, you know, they want to put that like, oh, that was way far back in the past. Things are so much better, because they talk about no. in Detroit how, how they said, oh, you know, before the 67 rebellion, the police department was predominantly white. And since then, mm-hmm. with affirmative action, now it's, you know, more than half black. It's not even, I, it's probably even more than that. However, just a month ago, they showed a white police officer who Snapchatted a joke about oh, making a it. black woman walk home in the cold. I mean, you know, yes. so I saw that. it's still going on. It's still going on. It, it's always been. It's never stopped. Um, it, it's just different. That's all. Instead of being beaten with batons in the streets, we are pulled over for, you know, ridiculous reasons. I always say I never forget to signal during a lane change because I don't want that to be the reason I end up dead because I mm-hmm. failed to signal while doing a lane change. Um, it's, not, it's, it's, it's a logical fear. Um, and it's a, it's a problem, and it's not going away, and it hasn't gotten better. Uh, I just believe because of smartphones and Snapchats and things of that nature, it, we see it so much more often that we are slowly becoming numb to it. But it's never changed. It's never died down. We just it, – it's always been going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's still going on. Still uh, going on. One last, okay, we're moving forward. And, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to do, and, and I, we're going to do these conversations frequently because so I much is going on in the you. world. Yes, I so love talking So much is going on in the world. Okay, <laughs> now, without going one way or the other, you have a couple of very high-profile arrests in Chicago. 
Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. One, how do we have the conversation with people about the fact that it is very real that LGBTQ people are still subject to attack. We have mm-hmm. our trans sisters being killed right and left. And, yep. and black people are still being subjected to racism. And then the mm-hmm. other one is if they finally locked up our Kelly, when are they going to mm-hmm. go get Donald Trump? Yeah. Oh, those are those are two big <laughs> complex things. Okay, um, so first one, um, I'm gonna so hate crimes are on the rise amongst uh, LGBTQ and people of color in this country. That's a fact. Um, what is not a fact is I don't know what happened in that situation. None of us know. Uh, mm-hmm. I do want to say it was very irresponsible of Police Chief Eddie Johnson to go on the offen- uh, defensive. He stated a lot of um, things that were opinions as facts. Um, mm-hmm. He stated that, you know, he mailed this letter, but the feds are saying he didn't. Um, we found out that the $3,500 check was for personal training. What I need Eddie Johnson to do is look into the murders of the trans women and the people of color and all the victims of violence here in Chicago that have gone unsolved for years. I need him to do that um, and, and stay out of the news for trying to be a celebrity. Um, when it comes to what I need to tell people, about um, hate crimes, I just did. The numbers are there. Mm -hmm. Numbers don't lie. And no one should apologize for believing him because it just shows we're real people with empathy. I think when someone is victimized, you should trust but verify. So that's where Mm -hmm. we are now. We trusted. We verified. Not sorry. With R. Kelly, R. Kelly is a I mean, he claims not to be a smart man. He's a smart man because what he did was he took sexual advantage of the lowest person on the American totem pole, black women. No one listens to black women, so it's easy to take advantage of them. That's what he did for years and years and years. The reason it's all catching up to him now is because we do have more black women in more prominent places, and um, they're listening. I, 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 I do believe strongly <laughs> that he has done a lot of bad things that are finally coming to pass. I have no sympathy for him, um, and, and he should get whatever justice our system hands out to him, mm-hmm. period. Exactly. Yeah. Well, but you know, but you listen to, and, and that's the thing that, that, that you wonder, and, I, and it is the thing, like you said, these are the most vulnerable of people, people who yeah. have, you know, who you have said, like, people have demeaned black women, people have talked about black women, For and yep. they've been like, throw away, and yep. like you said, and here, he was just like a predator to, to use these, and, and they were girls, I mean, you know, and just because you're able to have sex doesn't mean that you're an adult. I mean, I know some well, people who are a lot older than that who, who don't understand and well, can still be victimized and who can fall into that, oh, well, they love me, so if nobody well, tells them different, you mm-hmm. know, these are victims and, they're, and the fact that they have survived. Um, and, again, well, it's also black women who have been talking about this mute R. Kelly. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to say this because this is super important because I've heard this argument a lot. 
women under the age of 17 or, or 16, I believe, in Illinois can't say yes. It's under mm-hmm. the age of consent by the law. So I don't care if they said yes. It's mm-hmm. irrelevant. It's like me giving someone permission to drive your vehicle. You can't do that. So that's why his, the argument that they said yes is, is irrelevant and it's legally, um, it, it legally doesn't withstand. And, you know, and as a parent, you know, I mean, I don't care. You know, you go get, go get, go, you know, first of all, you have these conversations with your daughters. Not only mothers, but fathers have conversations with Especially their daughters. Especially the fathers, yes. Mm-hmm. And we have, as black people, a responsibility to our children. And even if it wasn't my child, are you there, there are, and there's a lot of kids in the world. But the problem is not even the men. It's the women, especially mm-hmm. the other African-American women that attack these other African-American women that have been victimized by R. Kelly. Black women are his biggest defenders. So we have mm-hmm. to look at that. We have to look at that. So it's not about Ken, because Ken, if, if there's a grown man dragging a 14-year-old girl down an alley, Ken's stepping in immediately. But I worry about the African-American woman seeing it and saying, wow, that girl's so fast. Look at her. That's what I'm mm-hmm. worried about. Mm-hmm. So we have to reflect on that in our own community a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One of the people um, who I've been talking to, I, I had talked to a woman, who, and, it, and it is that 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 dual thing about how to claim your sexuality but not be victimized because of it and um and loving yourself i talked to adrian marie brown who just her she has a new book out called pleasure activism and part of what Mm. she talks about is to learn oh she's amazing um about learning to to love yourself and not being judged and letting these opinions of other people, like, oh, you're too, you know, not to be slut-shamed, but also not to be uh, intimidated into doing something because, well, everybody else is doing if I want to do that, but to really loving yourself and being strong in yourself. And, I mean, it's, it's amazing, like you said, many part <laughs> women have to, to do that, but also get over the years and years of being told, you know, you're not pretty enough, you're not this Correct. enough, and you you're have to do all of this enough. to be there, you know. And and women have to reclaim that too. And, as, and I often tell women who have children, I said, you know, whether you have a son or a daughter, how you handle yourself is a lesson that they're learning. Correct. And how they'll go out into the world. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate to, to talk to some, like, really strong, amazing women, and it seems like a journey that they have come through. And hopefully those of us who have come through this, it's been a long journey, can shorten the journey for the next generation. You know? Yes. So, yes. Yeah. And that, that's what I'm aiming for. I, I am okay to crawl and be beaten down and kicked around because I have – you know, nieces and nephews behind me that I want to just to be able to walk into a room. Um, those same rooms I have to crawl into, I want them to be able to walk into those rooms. So I'm okay with it. So what's mm-hmm. coming up next? Oh, well, um, more writing, lots mm-hmm. more writing. 
My goals right now are to help um, Nicole Johnson in, in, in Ward 20 and Andre Vasquez in Ward 40. Those are my, my right now main concerns, to get them elected to city council, um, to keep writing, um, to stay politically involved. I'm, I'm still very politically active. I'm going down to our state's capital in a couple of weeks to, to lobby for LGBTQ rights. Um, and, and right now, those are my goals. Um, so if you were to, to do like a, um, the top five things that as particularly as LGBTQ members mm-hmm. of the black community, what are the mm-hmm. top five things that we should be not only looking for legislation, but looking to make happen in our community? Yeah. So number one, we have to get um, – Oh, we have to be okay with being uncomfortable. And by that I mean we have to be able to take our, 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 our LGBTQ-ness into black spaces, and we have to be able to take our blackness into traditionally white LGBTQ spaces. We have to do both. Um, that's number one. You have to do both. Number two, we have to become a little bit more political. I There's nothing that bothers me more than to meet someone who is LGBTQ and of color, and they say, well, I'm not really into politics. Well, mm. politics are into you. They're into your life, your, uh, your bedroom, your, your medical uh, visits. They're into you. So you need to get into politics. Um, you really need to care. Number three, we need to help each other. We need to nurture each other. Uh, what I've noticed so many times is that LGBTQ people of color tend not to like other LGBTQ people of color when we're in the same, on the same path, mm-hmm. and we have to stop that. And I can honestly say I, I'm guilty of it. I'm very guilty. For the longest time, I had no other male um, LGBT uh, friends, none. Um, and within the last two years, because I had to take a look at myself and say, why don't I have any other black gay male friends. Why? Why do I not? And I had to say because I have my own preconceived notions. We got to break that. So I have some really great friends now that look like me, and it's, it's amazing. So we have to do that. Number four, become financially responsible uh, because whoever has the gold makes the rules, and we're in a position where we can get the gold. So let's be financially responsible. Uh, you don't have to spend half of your paycheck to go out to a club on a Saturday night. Um, mm-hmm. You know, spend some time in the gym and then you can wear a hefty bag and you'll look great. <laughs> so, cause if you, when you look good, it doesn't matter. And yeah, it doesn't matter. Number five, most important of all, love yourself. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, That's it. it. Love yourself. Love yourself. <laughs> That's it. That's right. That's love it. yourself. <laughs> love yourself. You know? Yes. Love yourself, and everything else happens. Well, I think that that's enough for tonight. Um, <sighs> but I'd like for us to, like, like look at, like, maybe, like, every other month. I would love to. I love talking to you. Yes, I'm in. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, really, because it's just, like, like, so this is, like, pretty broad what we did tonight, but maybe what we can think about something and really, like, do a really deep dive into it. Okay, it's always so good to talk to you. 
Oh, you too, Michelle. And I'll talk to you very soon. I want to thank today's guest, political strategist and organizer, Ken Mahia Bill. We'll be talking with Ken throughout the year on issues affecting the African American, LGBTQ community, and of course, politics. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.